Sarah Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. One of the most frequent questions that I've gotten at teachmetotalk.com since we launched in 2008 is, what do I do during therapy sessions? Some of the problem-based emails sound like, I have this kid who will do absolutely nothing with me, or worse, from a parent who says, my child hates speech therapy. What should I do? Now, when we are really more intentional about planning our materials and our activities, things can get a lot better. So that's what we're going to talk about today is how to select therapy activities for toddlers and preschoolers who are late talkers or who have other delays and disorders that we're working with. Because the truth is, we can really work on language anywhere, anytime. But when we get a lot more intentional and when we can match what we're selecting for a child to do with his or her developmental level, we're going to be a lot more successful. And that's what this podcast is all about, is teaching you how you can most effectively help a late-talking child that you're working with, whether you are a parent or a professional. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. You can get the handout for this course. Uh, The link is right there below if you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening uh, to the podcast you can check that out at my website. This is show number 435, and you can find out all that information at Teach Me to Talk. And let me also let you know that this is from my book, Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual. And so I developed this uh, chart that we're going to be looking at today in the years preceding when I wrote the therapy manual, and this was released in 2011. So it's a really time-tested way for us to choose and be sure that we are, again, keeping in mind where a child's developmental level is when we are selecting therapy activities. Now, you'll see this isn't all just about the toys. There are going to be some other kinds of activities that we're going to talk about. And as therapists, sometimes in early intervention, especially if we have worked in other uh, uh, environments like the school system or with a preschool caseload, it's a little harder when we start thinking about what's appropriate for toddlers. And so that's why we're going to walk through this method today. So again, that you can be the most effective uh, that you can be. Now, this is pretty instinctive for some parents because sometimes, pardon me, They'll look at a toy or they'll see what you're setting up to do with the child and they'll say or they'll think that's too hard or that's too easy. He's not going to want to stay with that. That's not going to hold his attention very long. So as therapists, we don't always have that benefit because we'll certainly never know a child as well as a parent does. But on the other hand, we've got to have a tool so that we can make some pretty good Uh, uh, just have some pretty good ideas of where we're going to start with the kid as far as what kinds of activities that we're going to use. So today I'm going to share that chart with you. And again, you can get it uh, two different ways uh, with that handout for today's show or in Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. And we're reviewing this too, because we, we, again, just want to be sure that we are not wasting time because nothing is more infuriating to a parent when you're working with their child and they feel like that you just never quite are ready for them or never, never, you just never hit the ground running. So that's what we're going to do today is really, really look at this. Another reason that this kind of method works when we are super intentional about choosing the therapy activities that we use with the child is because that we will be able to avoid a lot of the behavioral issues that start to creep in when we are not as purposeful as we should be about selecting therapy activities. Now, I'm not talking about just being aggressive, because certainly that's something that we see with children when we are trying to do things that are either too hard or too easy for them. They kind of lash out. They have other things to do with their little minds and their bodies and their mouths other than what we want them to do, which is talk and play and learn, right? But I'm also talking about behaviors just like checking out or like wanting to leave you and go find something else. And so when we select our therapy activities and when we really think about these are variables that I can control, you can be a lot more effective in your work uh, with your younger clients. So we have eight categories of toys and activities that we're going to look at uh, and talk about over the course of this show today. Over the next few weeks, I'm really excited about this. I'll be showing you how to use a lot of these specific toys as we revive our Therapy Tip of the Week series. So be 
be sure to stay tuned for that. All right, so let's go ahead and start with this first category. And if you'll take a look at your handout, it's called movement activities and toys. So what do I mean by that? That means that we're going to give a child an opportunity to move as we are working with them on their language goals. Now, moving is so, so important as we're targeting uh, language with a child because we always want his little body and his little mind in that just right place to learn. So when we start with movement, toys, and activities too, we are meeting toddlers and preschoolers where they are because one of their primary ways that they know how to stay engaged with us, again, is to get their whole little bodies regulated and in that place. And we see children lots of times, if we'll just observe children in a group setting, whether we are looking at them in a in a preschool classroom or a toddler classroom, and we'll see the kids that automatically are trying to help their little bodies stay engaged with you because they are moving around in their seats. And the, lots of times we think about kids just having that kind of just focused attention, but that's not really always appropriate with toddlers and preschoolers, especially when we know that they have developmental differences and and lots of them sensory processing differences. So we have to address that. And one of the ways that we can do it is by offering them frequent opportunities to move. And as maybe if if as a parent or a grandparent would kind of think about get those wiggles out so that they can pay attention uh, and be even more focused with us. So lots of times we can, again, give them these movement opportunities as we're working on whatever our speech or language goal happens to be. So what are some toys or activities that we would consider to be movement activities and toys? And again, use kind of your common sense here. These would be things that we're that children aren't just having to sit down and play. They're going to be up moving around. So things like bubbles, things like balloons, beach balls are a wonderful option uh, for playing with balls with toddlers because they're light. Toddlers can pick them up and walk around with them, which is just one of the very favorite activities for a one-year-old. And lots of times we in early intervention are working with children with developmental delays. So even if they're two or they're three, they're still down in that one-year-old developmental level. They're still using lots of single words. They still love cause and effect toys. And so we know we better match our therapy uh, materials that we're offering and the things that we're doing with them. We better match that to where they are. So beach balls are a great, excuse me, a great option for that. A bowling set, so those little plastic bowling pins and balls. Inflatable bouncers or those jumpy houses, that's a great option for you if you have an opportunity like that. Things like launcher toys, so what do I mean by that? That would be a toy that you have some kind of uh, mechanism to send the toy away from you. So like a rocket stomp toy where you stomp on the little pad and the rocket flies through the air. Uh, There's some other little flying kinds of toys that uh, helicopters, things like that. And then there's some things for girls, like some fairies and some princesses. And I even have a really cool uh, Superman toy like that where you push the button and Superman flies away. So anything like that where they're with us with the toy, but then they have an opportunity opportunity to still move as they play and that's part of the routine. So other kinds of games too. There's a really cute preschool game called Elephant where an elephant blows butterflies out of his nose and kids can catch those butterflies either with their hands or with the nets. Certainly musical instruments for marching can be really really fun, you know, whether it's cymbals or uh, the shakers or even a drum and certainly more formal movement uh, kinds of toys would be play ground equipment like swings or slides. Now, these are appropriate for all late talkers, so no matter where they are developmentally, we know that playing on playground equipment and popping bubbles and chasing balloons and throwing and kicking and catching balls, those are going to be appropriate for our toddlers and preschoolers, no matter how uh, where they are developmentally or certainly chronologically. And so this is a perfect move around option like I said before, that we can offer all throughout our therapy sessions when we feel like we are losing a child. And I'll tell you the truth. I usually try to start most of my therapy sessions, especially if I know that a child is a sensory seeker or busy. I try to start with a movement activity so that they are coming in and they not only have had the opportunity to move in the parking lot and in the lobby and running down the hall, but they certainly will go ahead and get that gross motor movement opportunity at the very 
beginning of our session. And I found that when I think about that and when I intentionally plan that, especially for our kids who, like I said before, they're naturally sensory seekers. And if that's a new term for you, let me just go ahead and explain that. What's a sensory seeker? It's a kid who does everything he can to feel and experience his environment with his body. So he is constantly seeking out things that he can do. So if he were here with me in this room, he may be hopping up on this table and jumping in my lap and trying to climb over the back of the chair here. And so certainly we want to think about those things with kids and how we can include those opportunities, especially if a child's going to seek that out anyway, because what's he going to do if you don't give him that opportunity? If you're going to say, try that you're going to start with some of these things that are lower down on this list that we're going to discuss, what's he going to do when you start there? He's still going to find ways to move. He's going to get up and try to move away from you. So we want to keep that movement as part of the therapy activity or the therapy plan. So so I like to think about my overall treatment philosophy as move around and sit down and then move around and sit down. And I call that a move, sit, move, sit, move, sit treatment philosophy. And if you've listened to maybe two or three of my shows, this is not the first time you've heard me talk about this because I think it's something that's just so uh, naturally built into how toddlers like to learn anyway. And if you go into a daycare classroom or maybe observe your own child at home, he's not sitting in one place for very long unless it's something he chooses and he really, really likes. And so when we're introducing these therapy activities, we have to keep that in mind. So that's why I always like to think about these movement activities first and really kind of think about for our busiest kids, planning the whole session around that. And a lot of times we do it the opposite way. We think about the sit-down activities, and we think about the toys that we're going to do, the kind of that face-to-face one-on-one, which is excellent. But again, our kids need more than that. So if we think about planning our sessions around these kinds of activities, we're going to be a lot more effective with more of our kids, especially the younger they are and the the, the uh, just just if, how early it is in this therapy process. If they are just beginning speech therapy with you and they're a busy kid already, movement activities are really the way to go. So you're going to want to get yourself uh, some of those toys that we talked about and then really look at alternating that move, sit, move, sit, move, skit, sit uh, in your schedule. And you plan to do that as a therapist or as a parent. And I think I said this in the last show, but I've gotten some comments about it. Uh, so I want to just go ahead and address it. When we're giving kids kind of these movement breaks. You don't think about it like a smoke break, like they just get to go away and do their own thing and then come back to work. No, we're still continuing therapy as a part of uh, that. And we're still working on their language, even while we're doing those kinds of activities. So let's walk through that. Let's take a couple of these movement activities that I already mentioned, and let's talk about how we can address a child's specific goals within that context, because I want you to understand that you could still take a toy like this this or an activity like this and work on a plethora of different goals. So let's take bubbles first. So if we have bubbles, and again, this is the moving, one of the moving, uh, portions of our therapy session, what are some things we can work on that? Well, certainly with kids who are working on social engagement, while we're blowing those bubbles, what are we thinking about then? We're thinking about, is he staying with me? How is he making eye contact with me? How is his joint attention? Is he able to shift between looking at the bubble and then looking back at my face and then looking at the bubble container as I blow and then, you know, watching the bubble and then looking back at me? And so how was he doing with all that? So that would be a way that we could use bubbles with the kid who's working on that social engagement piece. Now, let's bump it up a little bit. Let's move on to this next piece, which would be receptive language or cognition. So what are we working on with receptive language or cognition when we're working with bubbles? Well, certainly, we always think about with uh, cognition and receptive language for children under three. Dr. Rossetti has taught us that you really can't separate those things. So we're thinking about learning how to follow directions during play, assigning meaning to new words words or new uh, labels for things. Maybe bubble is a new word for them. Uh, Certainly, if we were thinking about using 
uh, cognition too, it would be certainly like, uh, like I said before, staying with you with that activity and even learning about the properties of the bubble, even learning, oh, that's wet when it pops. Oh, this is yucky when it gets on my skin. Those kinds of things. Those are things that we can think about when we're working our receptive language and cognition with bubbles. Let's move on to that next rung up. What about a kid who's just starting to work on expressive language? Well, we know that we're not, not going to start with words, right? So what about gestures or signs? We know that we can work on pointing with those bubbles, and certainly that's a big gesture that we want all white talkers to be able to master because we want to give them a way to uh, show or, or explain their wants and needs even before they're able to use words. So certainly something like that. We can do some simple signs here, or if a kid is using a picture system, we can certainly introduce that with bubbles. Let's talk about imitation. We can walk a kid all the way through those eight levels of imitation, even using a movement toy like bubbles. We know that we can get him to imitate our actions with the toys as we pop those bubbles. And again, that might move on to more of a body movement. We know that we can introduce some play sounds and some play words, even like wow or uh-oh, or even uh, when we're moving on up that developmental ladder to start to use some single words like pop and certainly like bubble to request. And so we know that we can work on all kinds of goals across the spectrum just with that one toy, that movement toy. So let's take another toy in this category and do the same thing. Apply these same principles. We take this this moving toy, but we look at how we can use it with lots of different kids and work on lots of different goals. And so again, our social engagement goals, you'll see these kind of stay the same from toy to toy. And again, they'll stay the same from category to category too, because no matter what you're working on and no matter what your material is your goals will stay the same so what are your social engagement goals for toddlers it's always going to be we're looking at joint attention we're looking at eye contact we're looking at again just that ability to stay with us and participate so even though we're talking about beach balls what can we have them do receptive language wise same thing we're going to have them follow directions with it we can teach them to understand new verbs with that, you know, walk, run, throw, kick, bounce, all that new vocabulary development that we can work on even before they start to say those words, they can start to understand those words. Certainly we can have them request for the beach ball, like we talked about with our early signs and gestures. We can walk through those eight levels of imitation with the beach ball. We can have them start with that first level of imitating, with imitating actions with objects. We can give them things to imitate with that beach ball. They can pat that beach ball. They can throw that beach ball. They can do something unexpected like kiss the beach ball, right? We can have them follow those kinds of directions and imitate that with us. We certainly, again, can introduce those play words like we or whoa or uh, like we said before uh oh those kinds of words so again i hope that you're getting my point here you can take what match whatever toy uh, that child happens to be in developmentally or wherever you are in your process as you're thinking about my move, sit, move, sit, move, sit treatment philosophy here. You can take your toy, but you can also uh, really think about your goals. How are my goals? What are, what are my social engagement goals? What are my receptive language goals? What are my expressive language goals? And you can walk through this no matter what toy category you're using, uh, but also, again, uh, you know, wh wh what your material is and, and where, where you're staying with that. All right. So that's what we need to do with our movement activities. And we're going to introduce these movement activities anytime we feel like we're losing a child or his attention is waning in therapy. So if you feel like, oh, this is about enough on this toy, I want you to quickly think about not only, you know, uh, am I going to just try to keep this kid here with me and, and keep this, keep this going, keep this momentum going. I want you to start thinking about and how can I let him get up without always trying to say, come back, sit down, pay attention. And so the movement activities, when you think about I'm going to do a movement activity and then we're going to sit down and then I'm going to come back to a movement activity and then we're going to sit down again. You're going to uh, do a lot, have a lot better participation, especially when kids are really, really busy like that. All right, so let's move on to our next category, which is actually another moving activity. And it's actually also uh, kind of one of our standard things, like we just talked about movement activities and games and toys are appropriate for all late talkers, no matter what development 
mental level they're at. The same thing is also true about this next category, which is social games and music. So what kinds of activities would be included in social games and music? Well, this would be traditional little games like peekaboo and patty cake that you think about parents playing, uh, even with babies or toddlers. This would also include games that are a little bit harder, a little more active, uh, row, row your boat, ring around the rosies, ride a little horsey. It would also include rhymes like Humpty Dumpty or songs with hand motions, like if you're happy and you know it, or even something like wheels on the bus. This category also includes finger plays like Itsy Bitsy Spider or even a cute little rhyme like Jack and Jill. And I'll try to do that one for you in a minute. That's a really cute one. All right, so if you were thinking, gosh, I understood what she meant about those movement activities and games, and again, you can get those specific list with the handout or if you're looking at it and teach me to talk the therapy manual, you're probably thinking, oh, I understood those games, but I don't really have a list of those little songs that she mentioned or uh, that those music kinds of things. This might be something that you might need some resources for. And so, again, you can the ones that I just listed uh, are there on your PDF handout for you. But I've got another therapy manual called Teach Me to Play With You that is just full of those games. And so let me now that I've given you a resource for that, let's talk about how we use those. And like I just said, they are appropriate for all late talkers and no matter what developmental level a child happens to be at. And so you'll think about just like you thought about with the movement activities, this is another option when you see the kid's attention is waning with you. So let's say that you are going to move on and play with some of these other toys that we're about to talk about in these next uh, categories that are coming up, but you start to feel like, again, oh, I'm losing his attention, or he starts to get up, or you start to just think, he, he's, he's just checked out on me here. Going to a social game like that is another option and another opportunity, just like we talked with the movement games. So you're always going to think about uh, like I've said now 10 times, we're going to alternate when we're sitting down and we feel like we're losing the kid's attention. We're going to think about, let me let him get up. I'm going to do the social game or like we just talked about those movement activities or toys. So this is another option. This might even be something as simple as, say, letting a child jump off the couch. Or if you have a loop in your home, if, if you have a home where he can run from the den to the kitchen and back, maybe a big circle or a big open area, that might be something that you want to do. So we want to think about these social games. And again, like we said, with the movement activities that we just reviewed, we're not going to just let a kid check out and just say, run to run. We're also including his language goals in there. So how do we do this with a social game? We make it a verbal routine. Now, I've taught lots about verbal routines lately, especially in my uh, Teaching Late Talkers to Imitate series. So you can go back and listen to that show. It's four. 26, I believe it is, that we're where we uh, really review verbal routines and how to get them going. But social, your social games are going to all uh, want to be based on that, where you are requiring a child to do those hand motions with you, or where you are setting it up to wait on them to complete a word. So let's just think about a verbal routine like ready, set, what comes next? Go, right? That's the automatic word that we want kids to fill in there. So even when we're doing these social games with them, and even when we're doing a game like, let's say we're doing, um, <clears throat> let's just do some examples here. Let's say we are throwing a child up in the air, and that that's his little game. And let's say that we have him here with us, and we have him right in front of us, and we're counting. Uh, let's say that our verbal routine here is going to be that we want him to say the word three so that we can throw him up. So we've got him right in front of us, and we're saying, uh, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to throw you up. Are you ready? Are you ready? What are we going to say? What are we going to do? And so you start counting one, two, and then you want the child to do what? You want him to fill in and say three, or you could do it this way. You could do it if maybe he's not saying three yet. You maybe you could do three and then his, his word that he's going to say is up. My point here is you are going to want to wait on that word. And if, if that's what you're targeting, if that's where your goal is, where you're working, we've already talked about how we're going to work through social engagement, receptive language and cognition, and then, you know, work with expressive languages. We get up to gestures and signs and then move on to those earlier levels of imitation. 
you know, maybe we're up to that point where he's saying up is his key word, but we want to be sure that we're working that in. And, you know, and, and today, as even I'm talking about these activities and these strategies, think about your strategies from other shows that you're going to pull into this. What we're really focused on today, <clears throat> excuse me, is how to use this activity and how to make sure that we're meeting kids at this just right place so that we are giving them uh, the right activities to kind of keep them with us again while we uh, work on our language strategies at the same time. So let's let's be a little bit more formal about this. Let's take a game like Ring Around the Rosies and do what we just did with our movement activities and walk through all of these different goals. What are some things that we could do in a game like Ring Around the Rosies? And if you don't know that game, let me just explain what that is. That's pretty, And you might remember it from childhood when I start to kind of sing the words, but you hold hands and you all walk around in a circle. And I say, ready, set, go at the beginning of this because I like verbal routine so much. And because automatic speech is, uh, we're going to hear words in automatic speech before we start to hear other kinds of imitations. So we would say, ready, set, go and then we would walk around in a circle and hold hands as we sing ring around the rosies pocket full of posies ashes ashes we all fall down and then all of you are going to fall down so let's kind of run through these goals what we've done is you can be sure that you are not only thinking about the right activity but how do we work on all these different goals with different levels of kids well again the social engagement goal is what did he stay with us did he hold our hands did he participate in that little game did he stay until the end did he fall down on the fall down part did he get back up and instead of running away does he try to grab our hands and play with us again see that's an example of a child meeting a social engagement goal. He's right there with us and we can see evidence that his social skills are improving. He's doing what's expected during that game. So let's move on up with receptive language. What are the directions that he should be following in this game? That's what we would be working on with that. So that would be that we're going to be holding hands and he's going to stay with us and he's going to walk around with us in the circle. Now, (coughs) excuse me, is this us saying Every single time, hold my hand, now walk in a circle, now sit down. No, he's going to just learn the game. And that's what we think about cognition and receptive language. Do I do I get in the rhythm of whatever this activity is here with you? Do I start to understand once I play this game a couple of times? Oh, yeah, I'm going to hold your hands and then we're all going to fall down when she says those words. Those are the kinds of things that we would be measuring here for receptive language and cognition in a social game like this. Our next little rung up of goals would be, again, we're ready to work on expressive language, but we're not going to talk yet. We're going to think about nonverbal things first. So what are some gestures or even some simple signs that he could do with Ring Around the Rosies? Well, he could certainly sign more to request. We could even think about him just initiating by reaching out and grabbing our hands. Or maybe you're having him do a sign like go uh, to begin the game. That would be something you could do. Certainly, as we're working on imitation, he's imitating us as we are playing this game. He's imitating us as he sees us hold hands and walk around in the circle. He's staying with us and doing that. So that certainly uh, would count those first couple of levels of imitation, especially when we're looking at body movements there. So, uh, and think about uh, with verbal routines, what we've just said, uh, this whole song is a verbal routine. So when he gets to the end and we are pausing and we're saying ashes, ashes, we all fall and we want him to fill in down right and so that would be a way that we're working in these early uh, verbal routines early expressive language goals into our social game and then certainly we can we didn't talk about this back with the movement activities or our other examples in that first category, but we could even work on articulation with with things like this. If we know that we have worked a kid up and we're no longer as concerned about uh, language as we were, and now it's time to kind of think about speech intelligibility, which always comes when therapist last. (laughs) It comes last in our prioritizing goals for late talking toddlers and preschoolers. But maybe we do have a kid who's ready to work on some of those articulation goals and getting the right sounds in the right places. We could even work that into a social game. My point here with these first two categories 
is that we want to be sure that we are actively planning opportunities for kids to use their words and and learn to follow directions, not only when they're sitting down with us, but when they are up and moving around. And then anytime during the course of a session, when they we start to lose their attention, these are the things that we're going to go back to. And so just like moving around activities, these social games are appropriate for all late talkers. And we always want to get them in there again when we feel like we're about to lose their attention. And these games certainly target that togetherness and that connectedness that we want all kids to feel as they learn how to communicate. Uh, So I just wanted to mention those things too. Hey, before we move on, let me also say if you are new to my podcast and we've gotten so many new subscribers lately, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Laura Mize. I'm a pediatric speech language pathologist and my website is Teach Me to Talk. Everything at Teach Me to Talk is focused on helping you as a parent or a professional work with a late talking toddler, whether you have a whole caseload of those kids like I do or have had, or whether you're a parent of a late talker. And so I also want to say that if you feel that you've benefited from any of these videos on my YouTube channel or from my website, please consider purchasing uh, the PDF for this show for only $5. And certainly uh, that's a wonderful opportunity to be able to do that and, and let us continue to make these videos for the parents who can't afford that. So I just want to be sure that we're thanking you for that. All right, so let's move on. We got through those first two categories of moving around activities. Now we're going to talk about the sit-down activities, and we are really going to talk about matching a child's developmental level with where they are language-wise. Now, if you haven't ever heard me talk about this, lots of the the recommendations that I make are based on Carol Westby's work where she's matched the language level with uh, toys that kids are playing. And she has made such a wonderful uh, observation or uh, realization really in her work with toddlers and preschoolers in that kids really don't ever talk. Their, Their language skills are not ever above their play skills. Now, you will see kids who have play skills that outpace their language skills. But if we're working at where they're thinking about working at where their language skills are, we're not ever going to go wrong developmentally in picking a toy as far as doing something that would be way, um, again, way beyond where they are cognitively. So we want to think about that and think about how we can match these levels. And again, a lot of times we will have kids who are uh, toddlers and preschoolers and who do have uh, developmentally appropriate receptive language and and cognition. And so those are the kids that we think about, gosh, their toys are going to be more advanced than what they can say. But for a lot of our little guys, we have to think about matching those more closely so that they stay with us and that they, again, are able to learn at that just right place. So with this first category of toys that we're going to talk about, these are just the very simplest toys. Now, if you have my therapy manual called the autism workbook there's a tool in that manual that's so helpful here that's really it's kind of this is where the stages of play chart started is with this activity hierarchy that we're talking about today and then it kind of bumped up into that next level so if you are thinking about that tool and thinking about how we match toys to the developmental level uh, I've called this on this chart and on this tool very simple cause and effect toys but you might think about this as non-functional toys or non-functional play. So these would be the things that kids just handle. So let me give you some examples. So things like activity boxes. So popping pals where they're just pushing a button. They're just mainly doing one thing. We're just thinking about one action toys here. Things like jack in the boxes. Certainly uh, any kind of Fisher Price or play school baby toy where it kind of looks like container play. Meaning that you'll put a ball or a block in a hole or some kind of uh, slot there and it falls down and the whole purpose of the toy is for the child to what? Pick it up and put it back in again. So that's what we're talking about here. Just kind of these one action, non-functional play toys. But again, it's so, so important for us to meet kids where they are with this kind of thing. If we take a kid who is here developmentally and let me tell you the age ranges for here. These are going to be kids who are at that 6 to 12 month developmental level. And so if we take a kid 
kid, again, who is functioning down at this level, and we try to throw him into a category that's higher on here, say like vocabulary building, where we have toys that have lots of different pieces, he's just going to be lost. He's not going to know what to do with it. And that's what I talked about before with the behavior. We might see things like him throwing all the pieces or him mouthing the pieces rather than really playing with uh, the toy as it was designed. And so anytime you see behaviors like that, you know, I've missed the mark. I've got to go simpler. And that's why this kind of tool will really, really be helpful for you, not only as a therapist, but as a parent. If you're experiencing a lot of that with your child at home, you kind of take this list and look through it and kind of match what's in your child's toy box uh, and what he likes to do versus uh, what you're maybe trying to get him to do with you therapy-wise and it's not going so well. So take a look at that and see. And a lot of times as parents, you know, we'll just kind of buy toys, you know, from lots of different developmental ranges and kind of just see what sticks. But sometimes as a parent, you've instinctively known, oh, this is what he likes. This is what's going to work. So it might help you to kind of take the handout and just uh, look at some of these things and think, well, boy, most of the things she's describing are, you know, right here. These are kind of these category four kinds of things. And so you'll be able to make some good observations on your own if you sort of take this chart and look at where your child's toys are and, and sort of think about, you know, are, are we hitting the mark here? Is he staying with me? Is he participating? Is this an effective thing for us? Or maybe this is too hard or maybe this is too easy. Maybe I need to bump him up a little bit and, uh, and get some more mature toys here so that I can keep his attention a little bit better. But you'll be able to do that as you kind of think about that and walk, uh, walk through these charts. Now, our primary purpose for children at this stage is just to help them become more intentional during play. And so we can certainly, uh, so what does that mean? That would mean instead of just batting the toy around or flipping it over to look at the screws on the bottom or just uh, like a newborn or, uh, you know, a four month old, our grandson Henry's four months old and how he would play with some of these toys is going to be or or explore some of these toys is going to be completely different than a late talker who developmentally is still kind of down in this range cognitively. And so think about that and think about, you know, my goal here. Yes, we're teaching a child how to talk. Yes, we want him to communicate more effectively. But when kids are in this stage, our big thing may not always be language for them. It may be helping them learn how to use the toy appropriately. And as we said, just to participate with us and and stay with us and again become even more interested just in how the toy works and in how what's supposed to happen with a toy even if they can't activate it yet and that's another reason that sometimes these when we're looking at choosing play activities for children in sessions sometimes we want the toys to be just a little bit harder than what they could do on their own if they were playing independently why because they need us then that's going to be a reason for them to reach out to us to initiate with us and to pull us in and to want to include us in what we're doing but some of the time, we also need to make sure that this is about the child really, really learning how to play because that's how we bump up his cognitive skills. And we know that we need kids to have that cognitive foundation for learning how to talk. You know, uh, we we build verbally our verbal systems our ver verbal schemes however you kind of think about it as a therapist we build that on what was there before we added those words so that's that cognitive piece or that non-verbal piece and so we always need to be sure even as speech language pathologists and even when we're thinking speech therapy that we're still thinking about uh, building that cognitive basis for uh, all that wonderful language that's to come in the next few weeks and months so that that might be something that we're doing here too all right so let's talk Talk about other kinds of things when we think about the simplest toys that we can introduce with children when we're playing with them. You might be thinking about electronic toys because you're thinking, well, she said one action and she said simple. So, you know, wouldn't that be a simple toy? Absolutely. And when we think about, again, late talkers, so we think about kids who might be two and not talking, but still down in this developmental range, they really might need a lot of those electronic toys, those bells and whistles with those sensory properties to get them to engage with the toy, especially if there's a pretty significant neurological diagnosis going on. And we know that they have significant cognitive differences. We might need a lot of those kinds of flashy things or music to really hold their attention. But for the most part, we want to stay away from those kinds of toys. 
And why? Because we want the child, yes, we want him to learn how to use the toy, like I just said, but we also want him to include us in these activities and to listen as we teach him uh, these new words and to understand these things. And so I like to use things that aren't electronic toys, so more Montessori kinds of toys that are uh, just the toy is in, uh, you know, the action is in what we do with the toy rather than the batteries making it work. So just a little food for thought there too. Certainly as we are talking about this this earliest kind of toy play, these very simple cause and effect toys, we're also going to be working on those very basic cognitive milestones. And I've already mentioned uh, cause and effect here. And that this is what kids are learning at their at the very minimal with this kind of play is I have to do something to get something. I have to do this so this will happen. So that's a lot of what we're teaching here. And as you can see, they need the language piece because we're certainly concerned about that. But they also need to understand how that toy really, really works because we're going to be basing a lot of their future play and even their future language learning on them mastering uh, cause and effect kind of non-verbally. And if you think about, you know, with the toy non-verbally and, and what is a request? A request is, is th that's just kind of the verbal way for uh, thinking about cause and effect, right? Or simple problem solving. That has, a, there's a language component in that, right? Yeah, we say the word and then the adult does what we've asked them to do or the other child does what we've, we've told them that we want them to do. And so that certainly is, is why another reason that we want to work on uh, play at this level too, so that we're continually building that foundation for language. All right. So we talked about those very simple cause and effect kinds of toys. Let's run through one of these examples like we did with the movement games like and with the social games. We said what we were going to do, how we took bubbles and we took a beach ball, and then we started talking about ring around the rosies, what we were going to do. So let's do the same kind of thing, because I want you to start to think like this if you're a therapist or even as a parent really working with your own child. Okay, how can I work uh, with some of these early sit-down toys? Can we still work on uh, work through that hierarchy of goals like we just talked about? Absolutely. So uh, let's just say, let's take our first little toy from this list. Uh, let, let's just talk about Poppin' Pals. So what would we do with Poppin' Pals on this list? How could we work on Poppin' Pals with social engagement? Well, again, it's just going to be staying with us. The joint attention piece, you know, as you were talking to the child about pushing the button and then watching the little uh, box flip open on top of the little Poppin' Pal toy, you're still going to be uh, working on joint attention when he's looking up at you as you're, as you're saying, wow, or dog, or, you know, whatever happens to be the character or the animal inside your Poppin' Pals activity there. You know, we're still working on those same kinds of things with joint attention. We want him focused on the toy and learning the toy, but we also want him uh, including us and looking up at us and listening to our words too. What about the cognitive focus and the receptive language focus here? He's going to be learning to follow directions. We've already talked about activating the toy with words like push or pull if it's a lever. We're going to have him close the top, those kinds of things too. So those would be our cognitive focus. Um, and, and certainly what we talked about before with learning that if I do this, then this happens. Now, let me say one thing about expressive language. And I I sort of said it here previously when we were talking about uh, the social games, but I want to mention it here with the toys. Sometimes it's going to be harder to get language with these kinds of toys until a child is super familiar with it. So he's got to understand how the toy works before we ever expect him to talk. And I think sometimes we are a little bit unrealistic with that, even as therapists, and we don't give kids enough processing time as they're learning to play with a new toy. So think about that. And that's another reason that I really like to talk to parents about working on cognition and working on receptive language, even as we're playing. And along with the fine motor piece and along with the language piece, along with everything we do. But sometimes when we really uh, slow it down and we talk to parents about, hey, he's not talking here, but look, I can see him processing. I can see that he's learning how this toy works. And look, we know that because last time I didn't even have to tell him how to do it. He reached his little hand out and he remembered how to do it. And that's cognition. And so think about those kinds of things that you are walking, walking through this with parents. And as you're talking about, you know, it's not just playing to play, although that 
that's really, really important, they're learning other things too. And even to set the stage for their future talking, they have to really understand how these toys work from a cognitive or a receptive language uh, perspective too. And so we can certainly work on expressive language goals here, just like we talked about back with social games and back in the movement, the movement toy section. We can certainly work on using our gestures and we can certainly work on teaching a child how to imitate body movements and how to imitate actions and even early things like clapping here we talked about pointing even things like uh when when uh the the pop and pal hasn't popped up and we're saying where is it where is it and we're using those kinds of gestures so those are certainly things and remember the lower the toy is developmentally you know, we need to bring our expectations for talking or our language expectations way down because we know that if a child is down here and really learning how to master how to play at this 6 to 12 month or 9 to 12 month level, do 9 month olds talk? No, they babble, they make noise, they are learning how to understand what words mean, they're learning how to use gestures, but they're really not purposefully talking yet, right? And so that's certainly an expectation that we may have to help parents adjust as you are working with them as their speech language pathologist or another professional and really talk about how, yeah, talking's going to come and we're still going to, we're still working on language here and we still want him, we want him to say ball, this is a ball toy we want to hear that word but until he understands how to play with this toy and until he really learns how to imitate better and again walking through these pre-linguistic skills as we're even as we're looking at all these different activities that we can do even within this hierarchy that's certainly something that you can continue to talk to parents about all right let's move on to these this next category this is called early sit-down activities now uh, these are highly appealing visual toys. And so these are things that kids, there start to be more pieces. So more for them to look at. So things like shape sorters, things like your earliest puzzles, not with 12 different pieces to assemble, but maybe three, maybe three pieces like those early little Melissa and Doug uh, wooden inset puzzles. Things now you might add a tool. So maybe before you were using a ball toy, maybe a Fisher Price or a Play School ball toy where the main purpose of the toy was just to put the ball in. Maybe now you have a ball and hammer toy where the purpose is the ball is in there, but we made it harder. He's got to use a tool to bang on the ball to get it to fall through. Or maybe those little uh, those little kind of cobbler benches. That's what we used to call those little toys where the little pegs where you hammer with uh, the hammer the peg and it falls through those little hammer toys so those are good examples of uh, toys here it might even be really early games like lucky ducks or uh, whack-a-mole is another little game where you have a hammer and a child is trying to hit the gopher and again these are all these toys will be appropriate for toddlers functioning in the 12 to 24 month range now most of the time kids are going to be on the lower end of that range when these toys first start to become exciting uh, shape sorters those earlier puzzles but i wanted to give you that range there because there will be kids who are getting closer to two who are still uh, in this earliest developmental level with their play skills. So, like we said before with this category, once a child has mastered how to use the toy, then you're going to focus on teaching the language. And so this is too when lots of times we as SLPs really start to think about um, how how to teach how to how we teach parents to teach kids to talk using toys. So these are the first kinds of toys that that we would really focus on with a lot of single words and with a lot of words that are giving them more information, uh, like our prepositions and like our verbs. And so here's where we really start to think more about our uh, language uh, teaching here. Now, uh, I want to remind you one more time that we can do a lot of things here with requesting, and we can do a lot of things with introducing, but this is still really, uh, kids, when they're in this uh, play stage, they, they are still really just focusing on how to functionally use these toys. And so that needs to be as much of our focus here as talking. And so while this is going to be easier for us to introduce some vocabulary and start to really hear some words as we're playing with kids and really, again, require them to respond as we're playing, but we're still probably not going to get lots and lots and lots of talking until we get to this next category of toys, which I like to call vocabulary building. <clears throat> now, these are 
are activities that require more attention because they have more parts. And because we have more parts, there's going to be a lot more for us to talk about in here. So we're certainly going to target both receptive and expressive language. So these are going to be toys like potato heads or like our six to nine piece input puzzles that we all love to use. Uh, toys like food sets where kids can pretend like they're gonna, going to cook the food or even the little uh, pieces of uh, plastic foods that you cut. And so those kinds of little toys, block sets, farm sets, books with realistic photographs. And again, even though I said farm sets, I probably shouldn't have said that yet. That's probably going to be uh, that early pretend category that we'll get to in a minute. But here's my point. These are going to be toys that have a few more things to do and give you lots more to talk about. So here's where our language learning strategies are really, really, really going to come into play. Because you're not just going to talk about uh, before our your primary uh, word in a toy might have been the same thing. With a ball toy or a block toy, it was what? It was ball or block. And now with puzzles and with potato heads and uh, little earth Early little sets, farm sets, and certainly books will have more words to talk about. And so we're going to have more than one keyword here. We're going to be introducing multiple target words at the same time. So you can see how we can't really start a new talker here, can we? We, this is something that kids are going to have to have worked up into. They're going to probably by the time they get to vocabulary uh, building toys, they're going to be pretty competent imitators, hopefully. Although I can certainly see the situation that developmentally they would be ready for these vocabulary building toys. But you're still going to really be working on imitation uh, here. But my point is you can really, really bump up your expressive goals here. So we're teaching lots and lots of different single words. Uh, but for some uh, late talkers, we're still going to be working on those receptions goals too. So I think about these vocabulary building toys as the just just where we get to in early intervention. This is kind of our our meat and, meat and potatoes or our meat and bread, how, whatever analogy you want to use with that. This is where we're going to be even for older two-year-olds or a lot of even our um, preschoolers who are still down here in this uh, 12 to 24 month level. So let's just think about where they are language wise. If we're saying this is where they are play wise. So what are 12 month olds doing language wise? They're learning to what? Imitate a lot of single words. And then what are 24 month olds doing language wise? They're imitating phrases and they're probably already using, uh, if they're typically developing by 24 months, they could have as many as two or 300 words. Now that's completely unrealistic for us to think about as professionals who work with late talkers or parents who have late talkers, but we still know that they're going to have, um, that our point is here, there's the potential for their language for them to use many, many, many more words. And so as a kid, even in speech therapy, turning 24 months, we're always thinking about combining words and how we can get their single words moved into phrases when they have a big enough uh, support, a big enough uh, vocabulary base for that. But my point here is this is a mainstay for us for therapy because we have so many vocabulary options. So if you're a therapist and you are not just doing home visits where you can still take your own toys and do a lot of that. This is where you really need to think about uh, really shoring up your uh, toy inventory so that you have lots and lots of opportunities to show parents different kinds of toys that they can use in working with their own late talking toddlers at home. So vocabulary building is a big, big, big category. All right. So if you've gotten the handout, I want you to look where we are. We did movement activities and toys and we did social games. And we said that we're going to alternate. These are our movement things. And then we said <clears throat> for these next couple of categories, these are where we moved in our toys, our early sit down activities, and then our vocabulary building. And I forgot about very uh, simple cause and effect toys first. So here we had three categories of toys. Can you see how sometimes we start way up here with vocabulary building with kids when really we should be working down at these easier earlier levels and that's something that anytime I have a chart I feel like I'm always saying that on the podcast but it's true we overestimate what so many of our little light talking friends can do and then we wonder why isn't he staying with me why doesn't he like this toy why can't I keep his attention it's because we're not matching all of these things and we're not considering all these variables and so sometimes we play the play with toys that are too hard we're trying with 
brand new talkers who maybe haven't mastered those cognitive milestones like we talked about, like object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving, where our expectations are way up here. And so we're using toys with, you know, 10 pieces when they just can't process all that. And so I hope that you'll think about this as you are using this information about how we can walk kids down to if we feel like that uh, the category we've just kind of been off in what we've been selecting. All right, so let's talk about these next couple of, well, this next category. This is category number six, if you're following along uh, with your handout, and this is called sensory activities. Now, adults either love or hate these things. Now, we talked about movement before, which is certainly a sensory activity, but now I'm talking about things that are more gooey and slimy and dirty so here we're going to get messy with these kinds of activities so depending on what a child needs or needs to learn or what it what he needs to say engage with you is how we're going to select these activities so it could be something like water play it could be something like making a sensory box where you are putting sand or beans or rice or uh, anything in it it could be that you are playing with shaving cream any kind of thing like that where a kid is going to use his little hands uh, to explore uh, some kind of medium that, again, is not a toy. It's going to be something that's got some other kind of sensory property in there. Now, why am I talking about this? This and why have I put this so far down? It's category number six. And this is what I say when I talk about this when I teach these courses live. You are not going to want to introduce an activity or a material where, as an SLP, you are mainly focused on anything other than teaching language. And so when we have a lot of these sensory activities, we're really focused on what? managing behavior because you don't want the kid to eat the beans or throw the rice or take the water and dump it on his head or all over you or all over the other children or wherever you happen to be working with him. So I like to save these sensory activities until a child is really following enough directions and is and is um, directable enough for me to be able to still focus on language. Because again, if I'm worried that he's going to choke while he's playing with the sensory box, it's not going to be a very effective language teaching or language learning activity for us. So adjust our goals. When you're working with the child, again, and your expectations, as well as your materials as you're moving through this so that you don't uh, create more trouble. And actually, you're actually sort of preventing that child from even learning language at that point because you've introduced an obstacle that he didn't need to have there. So if you used a different kind of material, it would be uh, just a more, uh, just a better learning environment for him. Now, these kinds of tasks with sensory activities are great for building attention and they're great great for building participation and they're great for task completion but not so great like we said before if the kid's still going to want to mouth or throw or he he wants to get into uh, the container where you have the water and so if you have kids that are still really struggling with that kind of <clears throat> behavioral kind of management don't do these kinds of activities save them save them if you're spending more time on managing behavior than on teaching language you're in the wrong category so that's why uh, i wanted to uh, mention that there all right so let's talk about some of these goals that we could even do with some sensory activities that maybe you haven't thought about before so let's talk about those little sensory boxes and i've done a lot of therapy tip of the weeks about this and even included this as sort of a a, a toy model in our uh, other podcast, and I'll try to post some of those links below, but think about what you could do. You could have a kid name what they find in a sensory box. So let's say that you filled a Rubbermaid container of rice, and you have hidden lots of little plastic animals in there. And so what would you want the kid to do? You want him to dig around in the rice, pull out the animal, and then what? He can say what it is. If that's too hard, what are some other things you could have him do? You could have him imitate the animal sound. You could have him perform an action. So you're working on that receptive language goal with that toy so let's say that he pulled out a puppy dog you could say make the puppy walk make the puppy go to sleep make the puppy fly make the puppy give me a kiss any of those little things so this is my point with giving that example you can always adjust your goals you know and again if you feel like okay expressive goals can be too hard for this kid especially 
working with the sensory stuff. He's just all involved with his hands here. It's going to be really hard to get him to talk to me during this activity. Just switch your goal up. Work on one of his other things so that you can still address your language goals that you're trying to work on, still meet him where he is developmentally, and then still provide, again, that great opportunity for enriching his language skills, even if he's uh, not talking yet, too. All right, so those were sensory activities. Let's move on to this next category, which is early pretend play. And I sort of already stepped all over what I wanted to say about this, but I'm going to repeat myself here. Can you see how early pretend play is way down here, even for uh, preschoolers, for preschoolers who are not talking, they still may need to focus up here on these earlier uh kinds of toys and activities because developmentally they're not down to their uh, this level where they can cognitively pretend yet. So when does pretending come in? In typical development, we start to see a lot of this uh, start to emerge at 17 to 18 months when kids start to really use a lot of familiar objects appropriately. Now, let me just say, a 12-month-old can start to learn to use some objects appropriately, too. A 12-month-old, 14-month-old, you could give them a hairbrush, and they've had enough experience with that. They know how to brush their hair. And so I'm not saying that pretend play doesn't come in earlier than this. But when we have kids, when we're looking at that 18 to 24-month range is when we really would start to introduce early pretend play. So can you see, as an SLP, how you have taken a child who is not using a lot of single words yet, but you've introduced some of this early pretend play. You've gotten out your baby doll and you've gotten out 15 accessories. I mean, you've got the spoon and the bowl and the pretend food and you've got the wipe to uh, wipe the mouth and you've gotten a bottle and a cup and, you know, on and on and on. Can you see how your child, no wonder he didn't say very much during that activity. No wonder he didn't do very much pretending during that activity because one, his space is way too cluttered and then he's just not there yet cognitively. And so, We've got to make sure, again, that we are meeting kids where they are. And so this early pretend play, don't introduce that until the kid is really, really ready for that. And so let's talk about some of those examples. I've just mentioned some. I mentioned the baby dolls with accessories, a kitchen set here with some pretend food, and then a way to cook the food or to wash the dishes. Those are super, super fun activities to play at this level. Any of those little sets, and remember, I, I, I tried to say that back on on vocabulary building, but I should have saved that example for here. The sets like a farm set or a zoo animal set or a playground set where you have lots of different children, but there are little uh the little fisher price playground sets where they've got some options they've got some swings and there's a slide and maybe there's a ladder on the slide for them to climb up or maybe there's a pretend sandbox and so again we bumped it up not only from what we talked about in those vocabulary building activities now we've made it even more so and if we were really looking at this uh, from a stages of play perspective we uh, this is where kids again are able to do more than one action with a toy so they might take take uh, the farmer here and we might have the farmer drive the tractor and then he goes to feed the animals in the barn and then he let he opens the gate so all the animals can get out and then maybe the farmer oh I don't know maybe he brings the hay over to the cow but we have the character who's doing one character doing a lot of different things and the other thing that happens in this play routine or this stage of play is you can also take multiple characters and have them do the same action and so you might like I mentioned the hay the farmer takes the hay to the cow well then the horse might come eat the hay and then you know and it doesn't have to make sense the chicken might come eat the hay and then the puppy dog might come eat the hay but you get my point we've got one object then we have lots of different characters who come and do that same action so if you'll think about that in stages of play too, that's not something that we've really talked about as we've as we've discussed selecting these activities, but that's certainly something that we consider too. We have to give children opportunities to be able to demonstrate that they can sequence this kind of play and they can take one character and make them do lots of different actions or they can take um, lots of different characters and have them all do the same thing and so that's where this starts to come in even in this early pretend play stage but you can see just how complex that is and you can't take a new talker who's still really trying to master simple problem solving and I didn't explain that what is simple problem solving it's where you get the ball to fit in the hole or 
where there's you have to maybe open the door for the the animal to go into the barn uh, and that's probably a bad example but but my point here is You've got to match kids where they've got to meet kids where they are maturation wise. And you've got to match your toy to that. It's going to be too hard to have a kid learn how to do all that when he's back up here with simple problem solving. And his all he can handle cognitively is I've just I've got to learn and master this one action versus all these different actions that we can get down and these rich place games that we can come up with in early pretend play. So that was way down here in category number seven. So tons of goals are appropriate. And again, this is where we begin play based on a child's familiar routine. So this is where a child is really introducing, uh, hopefully, lots of new things. And if he's not, that's certainly something that you as his parent or his therapist can help him do. And so think about the things that a kid, uh, what kinds of things can he pretend with toys? Well, he can pretend the things that he does all day long. He can pretend to take a bath. He can pretend to eat. He can pretend to go to sleep. He can pretend to leave wherever he is like children do. Uh Sometimes in the pandemic, they do get to go out, don't they? <laughs> so he could pretend to, uh, you know, go to the store, go to school, go to wherever your child might go. So just th that's how you introduce early pretending too. is think about the things that are most familiar to that child. What does he already have relevant experience for? What will he already understand that I this little thing, if he's never been to a birthday party, I can't really introduce birthday party for play. Now, you can introduce the birthday party for play to prep him for the birthday party and to get him ready for that real life experience. But for most of the time, we want to take something that a child already knows how to do and then make that be what we're pretending. So those are certainly some really wonderful um examples of play and you on the handout more and more examples that you can look at there with uh, what we can do uh, with pretend play. All right, let's look at this last category here and I've saved this purposefully for last, especially when we're talking about late talking toddlers. And this is another mistake that I see so many parents and so many uh, therapists uh, try to make with uh, kids when they're playing with them in sessions is these early art activities. You'll introduce that too early. Now, why do we tend to do that with kids? Because we think that they're learning and we want them ready for preschool and that is fantastic. But just like we talked about with the sensory activities, we want, and just like we talked about with these early pretend play uh, kinds of ideas, we're not going to introduce these things too early because then we're going, kids are going to use it inappropriately and then we're going to be more worried about managing behavior than we are teaching language. So any of these little early art activities, and again, you can start with things that are less messy, like Play-Doh or like the Magnadoodle, but then you can move on to anything with markers and crayons and glue and stickers and paint and yada 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 you can just keep going with that stuff and that's fantastic and I love I love doing that kind of thing with kids but only when they are really really ready now some toddlers who are typically developing will be able to do this as they turn two some of our little late talking friends will not even be ready for this as they are turning three. And it is a real temptation to go ahead and introduce it because we want to get them ready. And I get that. And I have done that too. But again, I want your overriding uh, sentence that you remember from this course. You know how I usually say, if you only retain one thing from this course, this is what it should be. This is what it should be today. If you are spending more time managing behavior with the toy or with the activity than teaching language, you know that you haven't picked the right, you're not at the right developmental place for that. Uh, that child. And so you've got to back up or move forward, but most of the time it's backing up and doing something that's developmentally more appropriate. And so I hope that this sheet will give you some uh, more ideas. And especially if you're struggling with a kid therapist, if you have a kid that you think he won't do anything with me, or if you're a parent and you think he cannot stay 
understand that speech therapist. It's terrible every time I take them there. This tool hopefully will help get you back on track so that you are doing uh, more matching and meeting that child where he is developmentally. And that always, always, always helps when we uh, have a kid that we're struggling with is to take a look at this kind of information and see, see where our materials and our toys and our activities are falling. And the other thing that I want you to do with that is just to remember your move, sit, move, sit, move, sit. You don't have to have a kid stay with you in one spot for your whole 45 minutes with him. <laughs> he should be getting up to do things like the movement activities that we talked about and, and like those little social games and social routines that we talked about. So um, hopefully that'll get you back on track with some kids if you've really struggled with that. And again, I want to remind you that you can get great activities like we just talked about today in that toy list. Uh, there's a whole chapter in here in this book about how to plan sessions more effectively for toddlers. And again, you can do that for kids from the get-go, but it really, really helps when you've had a kid that you've been stomped on who's not making very much progress. This might be the reset that you need. Going a, going back and looking at where that child is developmentally and just choosing uh, some different activities. All right, that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech language pathologist and thank you so much for joining me for teach me to talks podcast